You know, the reformers uh, wanted to strip away what they regarded as man-made human inventions and to go back to the divinely appointed ordinances or sacraments that Christ uh, gave to the church. And then even when it came to those sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they wanted to administer them in the way that Scripture instructs us and with the simplicity that you would find in some of the, you know, the early church. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 105, and I'm Jared Luchibar. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. J. Mark Beach, professor of doctrinal and ministerial studies, joins Reverend Compton and Dr. Clary on the podcast as they explore Reformed worship and liturgy, its history, key elements, and the importance of these elements of Reformed worship. In this episode, we wanted to look a bit at just the history of Reformed worship. Uh, our, our churches, generally Presbyterian and Reformed, have some very common elements, but there are some differences. But how did we how did we get the liturgy that many of us use on a given Lord's Day in sort of confessional Reformed and Presbyterian churches? Uh, very good question. Uh, well, the Reformers of the 16th century uh, we're not only trying to reform the theology of the church according to Scripture, but also to reform the worship of the church. They wanted to worship according to Scripture, first and foremost, which is the only infallible rule of faith and life and worship, uh, but also to, um, you know, to worship according to the custom of the ancient church. And so they were trying to go back to the sources, to Scripture and to the church fathers, to, re- to recover worship that is according to Scripture. And uh, many of the reformers uh, set out to reform worship in the various uh, regions where the Reformation occurred. Luther did so in Wittenberg, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, Leo Jude, Heinrich Bullinger did so in Zurich, John Calvin in Geneva, and so on. Uh, But the various reformers all had a hand in reforming the liturgy of the church. It's interesting how you even note that there's an attempt to... Um, recover the worship of the early church. I remember several years ago, I was on a study committee uh, looking at the draw of many people in Reformed circles um, to Eastern Orthodoxy. And so our classes had had done some work on that. One of my colleagues, uh, Mike Brown, uh, Reverend Mike Brown, had um, had really analyzed the Reformed liturgy as it relates to the early church liturgy, especially in, in um, respect to the fact that many who were being drawn to Eastern Orthodoxy were looking for that antiquity. They were looking for a liturgy that had deeper historical roots. Um, how did how did they approach that um, that utilization of the early church? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. The, the reformers were uh, you know part of the you know Christian humanist movement, and uh, you know the the slogan of Christian humanism was ad fontes, you know, back to the sources. And uh, you know many of the Christian humanists at the time, such as Erasmus. Uh, were publishing the works of the church fathers. You know, he published the Omnia Opera, the complete works of Jerome, for example, uh, the complete works of John Chrysostom, or one other, you know, some other father were being published at the time. And uh, the reformers were reading this literature, and they were seeing how the fathers of the church worshipped and were trying to, you know, imitate them, to follow their example. And one, you know, very clear example of this 
is Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland. When Zwingli first went to Switzerland on January uh, the 1st in 1519, he announced from the pulpit that he was going to preach through the whole Gospel of Matthew, chapter by chapter, uh, through the year, rather than following the lectionary. And Zwingli got that idea from John Chrysostom, and he had just received John Chrysostom's uh, sermons on the Gospel of Matthew, which were pu- published, you know, just a, a little while before in Basel by Johann Froben, who was a friend of uh, Zwingli's, who sent him a copy of Matthew's, or of Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew. So there's, you know, one example, one of the very first liturgical reforms that were introduced by the reformers was preaching through the Bible, you know, systematically, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, which we call uh, the Lectio Continua, uh, you know, method of preaching or form of preaching. Zwingli introduced that in Zurich, and then other, you know, reformers uh, followed his example. And so the the reformers were rediscovering the fathers, reading the fathers, and they were trying to reform the liturgy of the church in accordance with the fathers insofar as they saw that the fathers were following holy scripture you know the reformation of preaching is just one example you know the reformation of um, the sacraments is another example you know the reformers uh, wanted to strip away what they regarded as man-made human inventions and to go back to the divinely appointed ordinances or sacraments that Christ uh, gave to the church. And so they, you know, had baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they rejected the other sacraments of the church. And then even when it came to those sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they wanted to administer them in the way that Scripture uh, instructs us. And with the simplicity that you would find in some of the, you know, the early church. You know, one, uh, you know, very early description that we have of worship comes from Justin Martyr, who was living in Rome at the time when he wrote uh, his first apology, and he gave us several chapters in that apology on uh, the worship customs in the Church of Rome about the middle of the second century. This was written about 150 AD. Well, the Reformers had this document. They studied this document very carefully, and if you look at the liturgies produced by the Reformers, you can see that they were trying to follow Justin's pattern of worship, where you would gather on the Lord's Day, Uh, The church would gather on the the Lord's Day for the reading of Holy Scripture and the preaching of Holy Scripture. And Justin very clearly is, you know, saying that the Scriptures were read and preached uh, on a lectio continua. There wasn't a set, you know, lectionary, which all the churches were following. But Justin says that the Scriptures are read as long as time permits. And then an exposition of the text that was read follows that. And then the Lord's Supper follows that. And so it's, it's a very... Uh, you know, a simple pattern of worship that you find in Justin. Uh, but the Reformers were looking at things like that and trying to to mimic the fathers because they thought the fathers were uh, worshiping in accordance with the biblical model and pattern. It does seem probably surprising for, for many people in our day where where novelty and new invention is sort of the, the order of the day. But to hear that so much of what we do um, in Reformed churches is rooted uh, in, in the early church. I remember one of the first books I, I was um, I, I read in, in seminary uh, was uh, was Anthony Lane's um, book on Calvin's um, use of the church fathers. And I mean, I, I don't know the, the merits of that um, in terms of the historical work, but it just sort of opened up a new um, appreciation 
uh, in my mind, of just how dependent uh, they were or, or, or looking to them as, as fathers in the faith, as it were. But like you say, not uncritically, you know, uh, going back to the, to the fathers, not as though that was sort of the infallible um, source of, of, you know, an infallible tradition of some kind, uh, but, but definitely going back um, and reforming according to Scripture and, and drawing on these, um, these scriptural elements present already then. That's very good. You know, Calvin, uh, for example, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, cites Augustine more than anyone else uh, in church history. And so the influence of Augustine on Calvin and the other reformers is, um, is dominant. And, you know, when it comes to the liturgy again, uh, you can see Augustine's influence on the reformers, particularly how they defined the sacraments as visible, sensible signs of an invisible, heavenly you know, spiritual grace. And so they make the distinction between sign and things signified. And, you know, Calvin's uh, Eucharistic theology, and it's not just Calvin, it's the other uh, reformers, uh, Martin Bucer, John Knox, and others, uh, their Eucharistic theology, you can see, uh, leans very heavily on Augustine. But I would say that there's, you know, some of the Eastern fathers, too, also uh, highly informed uh, Calvin's Eucharistic theology. The Cappadocians, for example, which would be Gregory of Nazianzus or Gregory the Theologian, Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea. Uh, Calvin read the Cappadocians um, very carefully, and you can see their influence on him in his Eucharistic theology, particularly in Calvin's emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit in uniting us to the risen and ascended Christ by means of the sacrament of, of Holy Communion. Maybe we can pivot even a little bit at this point, um, just in, in light of, of sort of this knowledge of, of where our liturgies came from. Um, you know, for our listeners, as they come into worship on Sunday, we, we, we sort of hope that they will note these main elements of, of worship. Um, maybe we could talk about those elements a few minutes. What, what do we typically find or what should we typically find? And, and what's the significance of the way that is often practiced in, in uh, confessional reformed and Presbyterian churches? I, I should add the fact that a, a lot of times we, we know we start off, um, we, we think back to Acts 2 verse 42 as sort of a, a big picture grid of, of what the early church was doing, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, uh, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers and, and, those are, are sort of big big categories where the major elements fit uh, are, are often um, fit into. But uh, what what do we what are our main elements in reformed uh, liturgies? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Andrew. And if I can just comment on Acts two forty two for mm-hmm. a second and how influential that verse was on the reformers. Um, Martin Bucer was one of the earliest to introduce liturgical reforms in the Reformation era. And uh, Bucer wrote a document called Grund und Ursach, uh, which means something like ground and reason. You would translate it something like ground and reason. Hmm. And I think, if I recall correctly, uh, this was published um, in 1525, or it's either at the end of 1524 or early 1525, somewhere in in the December area. But Bucer, in that document, is giving the ground and reason. He's explaining the the ground, the basis, and the rationale, the theological and biblical rationale for the liturgical reforms that had been introduced in the city of Strasbourg. And Bootser leans very heavily on Acts 2.42 and says that here you have very clearly four 
uh, elements of worship. You have the ministry of the word, you have the prayers, you have uh, communion, uh, which is how Bootser interprets the breaking of the bread mm-hmm. there in Acts 2.42. He refers to that or interprets that as a reference to the Lord's Supper. And so does Calvin and Turretin and you know, some of the other reformers. And uh, the fellowship, uh, which in the Greek is koinonia, which Bootser interprets as um, almsgiving, the, hmm. the sharing of material goods. And that if you look at Acts 2.42 in context, you can see that that's what the fellowship refers to there, that koinonia, because there was a sharing of material goods among the early church. And so there, you know, Bootser said, here we have a very, uh, you know, a brief skeleton outline of what the elements of worship are. And so every time we have a service of worship, Calvin says, uh, commenting on Acts 2.42, we should always have the ministry of the word, the prayers. We should always have, um, you know, the sharing of material goods, almsgiving or fellowship and the Lord's Supper. Hmm. And so um, you can see Bootser's influence on Calvin, and Bootser had an enormous influence on Calvin, particularly when it came to uh, the liturgy of the church. You know, Calvin was uh, driven out of Geneva uh, uh, at one time, and then he went to Strasbourg, and and he's pastored a French-speaking congregation in Strasbourg for three years and he used a liturgy there that was patterned after the liturgy that Bootser had put together for the uh, church in Strasbourg. And then when Calvin returned to Geneva uh, after that three-year uh, period, uh, he took with him uh, the liturgy that he had used in Strasbourg, and that was adopted uh, by the church in Geneva, and that became the liturgy of the church of, of Geneva. So there you can see uh, you can see the influence of Bootser on Calvin very clearly in the shaping of the liturgy in the church in Geneva. But I think this is also very important. Uh, John Knox uh, was uh, in Geneva for a while and pastored a congregation of English-speaking uh, exiles who were driven out of uh, England after you know Mary Tudor came to the throne. And when Knox was there, he... Um, came up with a, a liturgy that was based on the liturgy that Calvin had produced for Geneva. And that's the liturgy that Knox used while he was pastoring in Geneva. And then in 1560, when Knox returned to Scotland, that became the liturgy of the Reformed Church of Scotland. And it remained the liturgy of the Scottish Presbyterian Church until uh, the Westminster Assembly uh, produced its directory for public worship, which is what the you know the Scottish Presbyterian Church uh, would uh, eventually adopt as their own. But you can see those three. There are three reformers in particular: Bootser, Calvin, and Knox, um, who were very much on the same page liturgically. Knox borrowing from Calvin, and Calvin borrowing from Bootser. That shape. Um, the worship of the church, you know, set the basic trajectory for the worship of the church in the Reformed tradition. You know, you, you have Lutheran worship, which is a little different, but you sure. also have Anglican worship, mm-hmm. particularly through the influence of Thomas Cranmer in 15, 1549, 1552, the prayer books that Cranmer produced. But there's another tradition, and that is the tradition of Bootser, Calvin, and Knox that shapes particularly continental Reformed worship and Presbyterian worship. Yeah, probably should mention, too, at this point, the Palatinate liturgy out of the German reform Palatinate there. There's no deviation as such, but it was through the Palatinate liturgy 
that the Dutch Reformed found their way, their, found their liturgical life as mm-hmm. such. The Platinate Liturgy was uh, translated uh, into Dutch by Peter de Thenis, and that then formed the the Dutch Reformed side of the liturgical life of the churches. So that's just a, a sidebar there. There was multiple voices, though. I mean, it, it wasn't one uniform liturgy across the Reformed world. You had those more influenced by a Zwinglian origination of, of a distinctively Reformed style of worship, which in the city of Zurich reigned for quite some time without music, <laughs> with no music. Mm-hmm. And Zwinli even initially, in his uh, liturgical reforms, it wasn't one big blast at once. It was a more a transition. He still had the Ava Maria, for example, <laughs> in Reformed worship. And a trained musician like Zwinli nonetheless had a non-musical. So it, the story isn't, it's multi-textured, finally. You won't find the absolution uh, in the earliest examples of Reformed worship, but then it became commonplace. Some distinctives I think you find there is the use of the Ten Commandments, whether sung or spoken, the introduction of confession of sin with absolution, a, a word of assurance in approaching God, uh, the effort to combine word and sacrament together. Uh, it was not commonplace for the laity to partake of the sacrament, where the, as the Reformers were seeking to make this more commonplace. The introduction of congregational singing versus professional choirs performing the singing and worship. So in a very practical level, trying to, and also uh, even though the medieval, late medieval church had a preaching service in the vernacular called the prone or the proneus, uh, they somewhat, the reformers even somewhat modeled that, took over aspects of that. But this didn't become exceptional, but this was normative. The, the prominence of word over sacrament, not word versus sacrament, but word and sacrament, but nonetheless, word is first, sacrament is supplement and help to the word. Uh, these were all uh, important aspects in the development of Reformed worship. Very good. Uh laying out some of the basic uh, elements and features of Reformed worship that were common among many of the Reformers, even though they were different on you know, some other things. Uh, when it comes to congregational singing, the singing of the Psalms, mm. you know, psalmody was very important for the Reformers, but also the singing of hymns, too, uh, and the production of various hymns, many different hymns, is not only uh, a feature of the Lutheran um, you know, side of the Reformation, you see it among some of the German-speaking, in particular, Reformed churches. Uh, in Strasbourg, for example, you had as many hymns in the Strasbourg Psalter as you did the Psalms. And uh, one of them we still uh, sing today, I greet thee whom I sure Redeemer art. That comes from uh, the Strasbourg Psalter, not the Genevan Psalter. It wasn't written by Calvin, by the way, unless Calvin could write in German, which would have been quite remarkable since he didn't know German. 
Um, <laughs> but you have, uh, you know, the Reformed Church in Constance, for example, Johannes Zwick, Thomas and Ambrosius Blauer, who were who produced all kinds of Reformed hymnody. So in the German-speaking Reformed uh, churches, um, you had uh, you had an emphasis on hymnody as well as psalmody. In the Re- in the French-speaking Reformed church, you really had an emphasis on psalmody, and I'm not exactly sure what accounted for that. I don't think it was because Calvin was an exclusive psalmodist. Um, but perhaps it was because there were simply not as many hymn writers, uh, mm-hmm. French-speaking hymn writers, as there were German-speaking uh, hymn <laughs> writers. Uh, but Calvin prioritized uh, the singing of the Psalms and wanted the, the whole Psalter to be translated into French, and it was, and that's what they used in Geneva. And that, of course, influenced uh, uh, the Presbyterian uh, tradition through uh, John Knox. Uh, but when it comes to congregational singing, you know, what were they singing? They were singing the Psalms, and they were also singing hymns that they had written. And I think it's important to, to point that out. Maybe I can throw in even a question as we wrap this this session up a, a little bit. But even, it is interesting how in Acts there's this mention of the prayers with the with the definite article. And I know that's, um, that, of course, gets picked up in, in discussions. We'll, we'll do some, some common questions and answers uh, in our next session. But, um, but it is interesting. There are, um, well, something like the Book of Common Prayer, which, uh, which we could consider a Reformation-era liturgy, you know, does have a very standardized set of common you know, co- uh, prayers to be said together uh, as a congregation, um, you know, a, a, a set prayers, we might call them. Um, that, that might surprise some people how often Reformed liturgies uh, did that. But on the other hand, it's not as though extemporaneous prayers don't have a role uh, either. A- any thoughts on, uh, on how... The Reformed liturgies approach the question of the prayers. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Just, uh, you know, the Reformers took three different approaches to this. One was to produce an obligatory liturg- liturgy, one that is mandated, you know, by means of an act of uniformity that all, that all the churches must follow. That is uh, an example of that would be the Book of Common Prayer. The other was to produce a discretionary liturgy which is what Martin Bootser produced, Calvin and John Knox produced. And the discretionary liturgy is an actual liturgy where you have written prayers that could be read right out of the book by the minister, but it's also left to the discretion of the minister if he wants to alter those prayers a little bit, but he still has to honor the liturgy. He still has to follow the basic pattern of the liturgy. He can't just come up with one on his own. And then the third approach that was taken by the reformers, and it's really the later reformers, it's really not until uh, the 17th century that this comes about, is you have a directory, a directory for worship. And this was the invention of the Westminster Assembly uh, that replaced even discretionary liturgies with not a liturgy at all. You don't have any written prayers in the directory for public worship produced by the Westminster Assembly. Uh, You do have um, you know, a list of things that could be included in prayer if the minister wants to do so, but you don't even have an order of worship in the directory for public worship. So uh, from that point on, uh, you start to see more diversity liturgically among the Reformed churches. And, you know, someone has joked that the Westminster Directory for Public Worship is a liturgy that contains nothing but rubrics. Uh, <laughs> or, <you> know, <laughs> that's really what it is. You know, there, there are no set prayers or anything like that. Uh, you just have rubrics telling the minister what what to do. And I think that's helpful uh, for our listeners, too. Just, uh, you know, all of this discussion has at least situated um, what we do on a given Lord's Day. You know, when we enter into worship in a Reformed congregation, 
Um, you know, this is not some kind of, you know, bare, uh, traditionalism, you know, as, as though, uh, nobody's creative here and nobody's thinking about um about uh anything but preserving the past no there there's a long history that goes into the very liturgies we uh we practice in our churches and uh and and, the, and also the fact that that history is born out of a desire to like you say um to reform worship to to bring uh the worship of the church in the time of the reformation back in accordance Uh, with the scriptures themselves. Dr. Beach, Reverend Compton, and Dr. Clary wrap up the conversation on worship next time as they seek to address some common questions and answers related to worship, such as what is the regulative principle of worship? What about instruments? Is Zoom live stream worship really worship? You can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.